Welcome to The Craft. I'm your host, Mae Globus. This podcast is a collection of intimate conversations on artistry, mastery, and life with talented, passionately curious creatives and entrepreneurs. Most are dear friends, some are those I've admired from afar. I hope you enjoy these conversations, this exploration of the humanity that connects all of us as much as I do having them. Thank you for being here and for listening. Vince Garcia is a halo of warmth and welcoming energy. One of the co-founders of Kasama, he has spent the last six years building the award-winning Bean to Bar artisanal chocolate brand from the ground up. He grew up on the North Shore, the son of Filipino parents who immigrated to Canada in the 1970s. Roller hockey, soccer, and basketball were a big part of his childhood, and roller hockey is also where he met his future business partners. Working at a creative agency had been his ultimate career goal, until life presented another option after he inherited a family property in the Philippines that happened to grow cacao beans. In this conversation, we discuss how cultural identity played a role in his growing up, the genesis story of Kasama and its growth since launching in 2016, what the word Kasama means in Tagalog, and the political charge it represents back in the Philippines, the creative process for coming up with a new chocolate bar flavor, the difference between a chocolatier and a chocolate maker, emerging trends in the industry, what he appreciates about his three business partners and their friendship, and more. Please enjoy this engaging conversation with the humble and generous-spirited Vince Garcia. Vince Garcia, welcome to The Craft. Thank you for having me, May. I know. We are very, very new friends. Yes. A few (laughs) weeks old. Probably a few weeks old. So we met randomly and serendipitously at, uh, I, I guess I would call it a pop-up, at, yeah, August, was, was uh, it at August Studios. It was yeah. at August Studios uh, mm-hmm. in East Vancouver. It was the um, February and August uh, pop-up art and craft show. Yes, yes. And you were on the second floor, and you were the first display that my friend Pearl and I saw. Yes. And so we came out. I mean, I'm a chocolate lover. I love sugars and sweets, and I was like, we got to check this out. And you were great. You were great at, like, just telling us about the brand, but it wasn't until I saw the photo of, I think your dad, is it your dad? That's my dad, Mario, yeah. Yes, your dad on the prop, your property in the Philippines with cacao beans. Yeah. And I looked at it and I thought, there is a story here. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pretty famous picture now for sure. Yeah, yeah, so I am so happy you're here. So thank you for your time. And yeah, I'm, I'm excited to explore the story um, your story, Kasama's story, and everything else in between. Great. Thanks so much. Uh, really excited. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about your family and growing up. So uh, I guess I'm pretty rare. I was born and raised in Vancouver, and here I am today still in 2022. Um, I grew up in the North Shore in the 1980s. Uh, <clears throat> it was during a time when there weren't many Asians or let alone Filipinos uh, living on the North Shore at the time. Uh, my parents also decided to put me into, um, my parents immigrated here from the Philippines in the 1970s. And so um, they decided to put me into French immersion uh, from kindergarten all the way till graduating high school. So I was, it was an interesting time. French immersion wasn't really a, a thing back then. Like, I think our graduating cohort was about 12 people. Wow. And um, again, I think just, Growing up in a uh, as a as a first uh, generation 
uh, Filipino in the North Shore at that time. My parents wanted me to kind of assimilate and integrate into the community and put me into lots of different uh, activities, uh, sports and all that. So I almost kind of felt growing up that I didn't really fit in a lot with mm. uh, just based on um, where our family was kind of uh, located in the community. Um, mm -hmm. So it was a really interesting kind of childhood. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you speak Tagalog? Uh, in the house, yes. Yes, okay. So I'd speak Tagalog in the house, I'd speak French at school, and then I'd speak English outside of school. Mm. Um, Did it feel confusing for you as a child, or just was what it was? It was probably more confusing for my parents. <laughs> uh, they had to help me a lot with uh, like the vocabulary and the dictation. So mm. My mom would kind of struggle a lot through the French words. Mm. Um, but uh, no, I think I did okay. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about mom and dad. Uh, so my mom and dad, uh, they immigrated here from the Philippines again in the 1970s. Uh, they both grew up in the provinces in the northern parts of the Philippines. Uh, my dad was just an inventory manager at the time. My mom was doing um, like admin work for uh, various kind of like um, architectural firms and engineering firms. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, they're pretty hardworking. Um, I mean, you mentioned my, my dad holding that picture. Uh, that was in 2015. Unfortunately, he passed away before we could open our shop mm. on Granville Island. So, um, but uh, yeah, very thankful for the, the risk that they took. Yeah, yeah. And the sacrifices they made. So, yes, it is. It is. I can't even imagine, you know, what they had to go through and um, to come to a new place and, and start anew. So it's a very, it's a very brave thing. Yeah. Yeah. What were you like as a kid? I uh, think it was, I mean, most people probably say that they're pretty interesting kind of growing up in the, the analog days before <laughs> the internet. Um, I think it's pretty, I wouldn't say eccentric, but I did kind of gravitate a lot, a lot towards kind of very eclectic things that are very eclectic uh, musical um, influences in my life growing up. Um, I think growing up in the 80s and 90s, you saw pop give way to uh, grunge and gangster rap. Yes. And techno. And so uh, it was nice enough to be in my uh, teens during that time. So I got to experience a lot of uh, things that we probably don't really uh, experience much today in terms of like mosh pits and at uh, kind of like punk shows and stuff like that. That was pretty common back in the North Shore back then at Sealand Hall and Deep Cove. And yeah. Um, I used to work at Little Caesars Pizza in Deep Cove. It was my <laughs> no first way. job. And uh, that was my introduction into kind of the b-boy and hip-hop scene that was kind of emerging at the time. So because of Little Caesars? Uh, it, was a, it was one of my coworkers. I actually had a radio show at, at SFU uh, as a no teenager. Way. Yeah, and no one listened to it. It was <laughs> on cable FM. Uh, it was called Pickled Beats. Um, <laughs> and we would be playing kind of like breakbeat, kind of rare groove. And so I think, again, during my like 14 to 17 were really interesting years in terms of being exposed to a lot of these kind of musical art movements mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. Did you have like a favorite genre or were you kind of, I, le I like everything, everything sort of seems ah, to me. I took a lot of heat for that in high school. I'd, I'd wear a Metallica shirt one day and then like a Snoop Dogg shirt the next day. And so I took a lot of heat. They're for, like, take a side. Take a, exactly. <laughs> so uh, I, I kind of just gravitated towards whatever I kind of, enjoyed the most mm. and I think that was really important in terms of not feeling too pressured to kind of fit in anywhere yeah and yeah. I think it goes back to what I was saying about I had a bit of a an outsider kind of upbringing in terms of not fitting in anywhere so you fit in everywhere mm. that's really interesting yeah you become this chameleon kind where of you yeah can kind of join everything but in a good you way know, you're in a good way yeah <laughs> yeah just like 
not very threatening. No. <laughs> um, I would. I think I read somewhere along the way that you also were in hockey, right? Yes. So yes. I played sports growing up. I was fortunate enough to uh, play soccer and hockey at the same time, um, and also played a bit of uh, like basketball in high school. Mm-hmm. So just learning, uh, you know, fitting into a team, understanding your role. These are kind of things that I, I think uh, really helped as uh, me develop as a person growing up, knowing that it's al- always about you, mm-hmm. and that you have a kind of you, you play a part in a bigger picture. So, mm-hmm. and this is where you met your future business partners. Correct. Right. So um, for those who don't know, uh, I have a shop on Granville Island called Kasama Chocolate. Uh, it was um, like a friend project that started in 2014, 2015 between myself, uh, Steph and Dominic and Oliver. Uh, we actually met playing roller hockey uh, back in around, around the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And uh, eight years later, we or sorry, five, five years later, this opportunity came up and a lot of people told us not to do it because, you know, friends and business don't often mix. Yeah. But yeah. I think all of us kind of had similar upbringings uh, and a lot of those values we brought to the table that help uh, build the business that it is today. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think the Genesis story of it is is so interesting, too, because it came out of uh, kind of came organically because you ended up inheriting a piece of land or family property in the Philippines. That's right. Yeah, so in 2014, um, my dad uh, said we had to go back to Asia, back to the Philippines, into a rural town called Tuol in the northern part of the country, northern tip of the country. And we had to sort out some property issues because my dad and his siblings had kind of immigrated or left that decades ago, and it's been sitting there idle for close to 40 years. And my dad sent back some pictures of what was there because he didn't want me to go. He said it wasn't worth the time uh, to go check it out. I had never been to that part of the of Asia before. And uh, he sent back one picture, and I thought it was mangoes he was holding, which turned out to be cacao pods. And uh, I didn't think much of it at the time. Um, uh, me, Stefan, Dom, and Oliver had uh, beers that same week that the news broke, and I told them I had to go back. And when I told them that, they said, oh, could your dad uh, bring back some cacao beans we could try making chocolate just for fun? And so my dad was able to bring back a few Ziploc bags. Uh, we just kind of went on Google and YouTube and forums to learn how to make chocolate. And um, I think we discovered that calendar year that there was a craft chocolate movement happening throughout the world, uh, especially in the States, uh, Japan, and Europe. And that's when we saw that there was an opportunity there, and we kind of took took it by the horns and kind of went with it. So Yeah, and I, I remember you saying that uh, – two of your friends were super into making craft beer. So they, yes. they'd always been experimental with, with different things. And that's why they asked for the, yeah. the beans, right? Kind of along that. So Oliver and uh, Stefan had a side project called Monkey Paw Brewing. They would make uh, craft beer out of the house they were renting in East Van back in the early 2000s, um, back before craft beer was really a thing. And so I would just kind of hang out and help them make their beer and uh, so we're always kind of interested in making things. I think the, that kind of craft spirit was always in all of us at the time. Mm. And so when the opportunity came up to try and make something that kind of everybody likes to eat, uh, we kind of jumped on it. So Yeah, and kasama means in Tagalog means friendship, collaboration, camaraderie, and like a collective, yeah, togetherness, collective togetherness, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, at the time, um, before we decided to like, you know, take it to another level and try going to farmer's markets, we had to come up with a brand name and uh, 
I think the funny thing is most people, when you think of chocolate, you think of Europe. And uh, my, their, my, my business partners, their backgrounds are Swiss and German. So mm. it'd be pretty easy just to pick a, like a European theme or European word. But I thought it would be kind of neat to kind of honor the origin story, um, honor where the beans came from. And the fact that we were all friends, so the name kind of worked perfectly. Yeah, and you've, you've spent some time in the Philippines. I know that, that you've met um, one of the original cacao farmers, uh, Arminio. We've, so I've, uh, yeah, I hadn't really gone back to the Philippines much until this opportunity came up. Mm. Now I go about twice a year. Uh, but at the time, we've met some people who have been in the industry for a very long time. There's one farmer that we know who's been, who's 82 years old. He's been farming for a very long time, and... Um, it's kind of these hit, kind of hidden kind of origins for chocolate because most people, when you think of cacao beans, you think of uh, Central America, South America, and Africa, and you don't really think of the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Um, so to be able to work uh, with people back home in my dad's hometown and meet kind of these, say, living legends in the industry who've been around for a very long time, uh, mm-hmm. it's kind of like this revival that's happening now. So it's really neat to, to be able to work with uh, people back there. Yeah, yeah. What What have you learned most from these people that you you work with? Uh, probably not so much about uh, cacao, but it's more the culture mm-hmm. and uh, how business is done in rural areas and developing countries. Uh, it's a real eye-opener. Um, for people who don't know, I think the Philippines has close to like five to five or 7,000 different dialects. Uh, where we started our cacao story or chocolate story, they speak five dialects there wow. uh, outside of the main one. And so my Tagalog is also very minimal. So there's a there was a learning curve there, uh, picking up on kind of social etiquette. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to call my dad's hometown like the, the land before time because when you go there, it's still like the 1960s. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of kind of adjusting mm. um, and dealing with people in a very different uh, way. Mm. How uh, would you describe that? How, how would you be dealing with them in a different way? I think everyone almost, you almost approach it like everyone's family. So uh, from old elders uh, to younger people, the way that you address them um, and like how business is done or how you build relationships it's a lot over like a coffee or, or like a cigarette. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very casual, but it's kind of there's a lot of kind of gauging going on during these little kind of fleeting moments. Mm. Uh, the fact that there's no cell phone reception in all of these areas, too. Um, so the way that they communicate is very different from how we communicate here. Mm. And uh, being a communication major myself, uh, there's that saying, you know, the medium is the message. So there the media is very limited. Right. So it's still kind of mediated through uh, face-to-face interactions, which is really interesting and fun. Yeah, and, and I suppose, too, because your your Tagalog isn't as strong, No. right? <laughs> there has to be this trust that you need to be able to build with them just through gesture and action and your energy around them. Yeah, I think main thing, too, is I think uh, the – the concept, the I guess the the idea of people of a businessman in Asia is somebody who wears a, a shirt and tie, who's very far away from the grunt work, getting their feet, getting their hands, sorry, not their feet, well, their feet dirty too, their hands dirty, uh, walking in the mud, in like a mosquito infested kind of areas. Um, and here I was, kind of walking with farmers with machetes, uh, going deep into these kind of uh, I wouldn't call them jungle areas, but very heavily forested areas, and um, just you know, go, doing everything the way that everybody else has been doing it for a long time. I think mm. that you gain a lot of respect that way too. Yeah. Um, and trust as well. Yeah, Knowing absolutely. that you're willing to kind of sweat as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's the currency out there. Like yeah. how, how hard are you <laughs> are you willing to work? 
Exactly. Yeah. And I remember you saying too to me the other day that Kasama actually has a very politically charged nature. Yes. That you weren't uh, aware we weren't of. weren't aware of at the time. So for those uh, listeners there who don't uh, know much about like the Philippine language or Philippine politics, when you think of the Philippines, you think of beaches, you think of you know a lot of friendly uh, people who are like good singers or dancers. You never think of this dark kind of violent world similar to like what you see in Central and South America, but it's very, very real thing uh, in certain parts of the Philippines, especially the, the rural areas. So uh, I found it kind of funny when I, I had Kasama shirts uh, printed out when I was in the Philippines. So I would wear it when I was going out and visiting plantations. And some people said, oh, that's, that's an interesting word. Like, do you know what that means here? And I said, of, of course I know what it means. It's like friendship and all that. So I said, no, it's, it's, a, it's a very charged uh, left-leaning word, uh, meaning comrade. Kind of another word for saying comrade. Uh, so if you're people who kind of um, align with that ideology of communism, especially Maoist communism, um, mm. that word actually is a very, uh, it resonates with a lot of people there. So I found it kind of scary in a way, mm -hmm. uh, being in certain areas where I go. Uh, but I think the intentions are good in terms right. of what we're doing. I think that's the main thing. Yeah, and you're able to explain your story. And yes, yeah. with my minimal Tagalog. <laughs> and through a lot of gesturing. Yes, <laughs> and giving out free chocolate. <laughs> always a good thing. Free chocolate is always a good thing. Well, I'd like to take it back to the story of the, the, the company, and um, I'd love to know more about that time you went to Seattle and you went to the chocolate festival and how that opened up your perspective to this industry, this craft chocolate industry that you maybe didn't know as much about or, or, or knew how far reaching yeah, it was. It, it was a huge eye opener. Um, so I definitely have to give credit to credit where credit's due. Uh, there was a local couple in Vancouver, uh, Chris Von Samothy and Jasmine Lukuku. They're kind of like foodies, uh, well-known foodies and artists. And they saw us post uh, an Instagram picture of my dad with, Cocoa, uh, cacao beans and they said you should go to Seattle uh, during Remembrance Day long weekend because there's this Northwest Chocolate Festival and so you know Seattle is only a two-hour drive away uh, we decided to make a bit of a road trip down there and just check it out and um, I, I highly recommend anybody uh, who likes chocolate to go to this it's uh, every Remem Remembrance Day long weekend in Seattle uh, so it's a huge festival we went down there and there were makers um, from all over the world from tokyo new york san francisco uh, philippines as well and there were, the chocolate bars were going from anywhere from like ten dollars ten dollars us to 25 us depending on um where it was who the makers were and so we were kind of it was a mind-boggling thing to see that but at the same time people were like snatching them up by the dozen um so one maker from tokyo was sold out like halfway through and so when we said, oh, why, why are these chocolates so expensive? They said, well, try some of the chocolate. And so we tried a few chocolates, and a few of them tasted kind of like strawberry jam and these kind of nice plum. We're like, oh, you're putting fruit in the chocolate. They said, no, that's just from the cacao bean. And we're like, oh, okay. And then they said that's the whole thing with, with craft chocolate, similar to craft beer. It's a lot of the emphasis and focus is on the quality of the, of the products, of the cacao, cacao beans, how it's processed, how it's fermented, mm -hmm. similar to single origin coffee. So they, they mm -hmm. use, there's a lot of similar terminology that they use in the craft chocolate world. Yeah. And so, I mean, at that stage, we were maybe eight months into just experimenting, um, but we kind of thought like there was a lot of potential here. Um, just in Vancouver and in Canada in general, it's still very niche. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can imagine this is almost 
seven years ago that it was super super niche right and um that was kind of it was, it was validating to know that like we were not wasting our time doing something just on the weekends that it has a lot of potential to kind of change our lives and allow us to learn how to how to start a business and yeah absolutely and there is such a craft to the chocolate and, and in artistry i know that when um you told me that um in the last conversation that we had that was offline um yeah it reminded me so much of like winemaking or yeah like coffee like really really great coffee and and where it comes from and you were saying that there's a difference between being called a chocolatier and a chocolate maker correct for the uninitiated how would you how would you uh, so describe a lot of people this? ask us oh so are you chocolatiers i know a lot of companies like to really make that very explicit that are chocolate makers um so the difference between the two, I'd say, is for the longest time, uh, most of the world's uh, supply for chocolate that you'd see being used for most chocolate bars or pastries uh, were just a few kind of really large uh, multinational companies that would uh, based out of Europe that would supply the world with most of the chocolate that we use. Um, not a lot of attention given to like the origin or the kind of the farming practices, uh, the variety of chocolate uh, cacao beans that are being used for the chocolate was just like a percentage of chocolate that you'd buy. Uh, so chocolate makers uh, actually have full control over the, the product. Um, so where the, where the beans are coming from, how long it's roasted for, the temperatures, how long it's ground for or refined for. Um, so the difference between the two, I'd say, is uh, the chocolate makers have full control. There's a lot more kind of transparency along the supply chain in mm-hmm. terms of uh, where the, the final end chocolate bars, uh, how it's being made. Um, and there's also a chocolatier component to being a chocolate maker because we actually will make chocolate right. with, with the with the chocolate that we make. We make the, uh, mold them and, and temper them into bars. Yeah, uh, I think chocolatiers have a lot more focus on confectionery, so a lot of the chocolates uh, uh, bought uh, in a pre pre made form, and then they would melt it down and use it for their bonbons or their mm. uh, pastries, like a Purdy's or. So I think Purdy's actually there is that they do do a bit of. Um, their own kind of branding too. I'm not too sure. But there's definitely a shift happening now. Mm -hmm. Um, There's more awareness. Again, I said in Canada, it's still pretty niche, but in the States and and Asia and Europe, it's definitely a a full-on industry now. Right, and and Kassam is rarer in the sense that you're a bean-to-bar. Bean-to-bar and and that we source from from Asia. Mm. Uh, A lot of people don't associate cacao beans uh, with the Philippines, even though it was the first country outside of Mesoamerica to get it. So before okay. it even went to Vietnam or Africa, it came to the Philippines. Oh, I see. Yeah. Huh. Well, I'm really interested in the creative process that you guys go through when you're concocting a new chocolate bar. Um, can you take me through kind of like a high level what that process looks like for you guys when you are wanting to launch a new bar? So if it's um, so now that we've been doing this for close to seven years, I think we kind of understand more of like how to develop recipes. I think at the, the early stage, it was more like sourcing like good cacao beans. That's the first step. And then making a, a coming up with a good roast profile for it. So you can roast the cacao beans similar to coffee beans. A lot of the temperature and the time makes a huge impact on the final product. And so for us, I think the early days was just playing around with the beans we had from the Philippines and then getting beans from different origins to kind of compare. And um, we're lucky enough uh, living on the West Coast that there are a lot of people who are are familiar with craft chocolate, who have had chocolate from other makers around the world. And there's a few kind of specialty shops where we can get feedback from. Mm -hmm. 
but for the most part it's um i think it's again it's finding like a good good source first um finding the right roast profile it takes about five to six tests that we usually do we have our own we kind of built our protocols over the years it's kind of funny for me to say that mm -hmm. um and then uh like flavor development uh, mouthfeel so very similar to drinking like fine wine or whiskey a lot of those uh, kind of elements are factored into the experience of eating a craft chocolate bar Mm. I think one thing too I'm, I gotta say is that in North America, chocolate and candy are kind of in the same category. In Europe and Japan, chocolate's very separate from candy. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, um, when so you, definitely treated more like an art, almost like a whiskey. Only, yeah. So you get the flavor notes as you exhale. So very similar to whiskey. Mm. Um, so if you ever take like a chocolate sommelier course or go to like a tasting event where there are people who are knowledgeable about uh, chocolate, there's a certain way to eat it. Mm -hmm. um, but going back to your question in terms of uh, how we come up with ideas, uh, back then, again, it was focusing more on dark chocolate bars. And as we started to feel more comfortable with the equipment that we had, uh, we could start up coming with kind of newer flavors and experimenting with different ingredients, such as like durian. Yeah. Or, oh, boy, that's that's a strong flavor. Yeah, or with uh, different types of fruits. Yeah. Um, so we stone grind them uh, in our on their refining machines that break down the particles into like a smooth kind of chocolate liquor uh it's called cocoa liquor. Yep. And uh, usually then you can like get an early idea of like how the, the final uh, product's going to taste. So mm -hmm. uh, that's just from se uh, seven years of eating lots of chocolate too. Mm -hmm. uh, the nice thing about this industry, it's very open since it's very small. So I think information sharing amongst other makers doesn't matter where you are in the world. People are fairly um, open about sharing ideas, which well, is really nice. Well, that's pretty wonderful. Yeah, yeah. it's really good. Um, and I think as we've kind of built our company and brand up over the years, um, you know, we we respect a lot of our peers in the industry and mm. I think that that's kind of reciprocated as well. Mm -hmm. So a lot of ideas uh, just come over like text messages right? Uh, or like, oh, there's this new origin or there's this new technique that came out. People are pretty open to sharing uh, these new kind of discoveries, which is great. Mm, that's so good. Yeah. You know, you were just talking about um, texture, right? And texture on your tongue. And like you, you guys consider all of these things in, in craft chocolate. I bought a bar that day that I met you. Mm -hmm. I bought the Morena, yep. which means queen in Tagalog. It's right? queen, queen in Tagalog and Spanish. And in Sp Spanish. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And um, I do. And it was you called it tan chocolate, which yeah. is, yeah, which is cool and is not really something that's out there. No. But I also do remember the feel of it on my tongue. It was, um, it was smooth, but light. Like it was, a, it's a very light tasting chocolate. Yeah. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, no, it was really, really great. But now th it triggered when you said you consider all these things. It made me think of when I ate that bar, how I felt. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, it's great. Thanks. Thanks for that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been pretty popular. So we we launched this bar a few weeks back. We actually launched it, launched it at that pop up that you came to, and it doesn't really exist in the industry. I mean, there's blonde chocolate, which uses a similar. So we use muscovado sugar, which is found um, in the West Indies, the Philippines, uh, South Asia as well. It's a very sticky and hard to work with uh, sugar. It's an unrefined sugar. So it's very molasses. -y. It's very sticky. Um, and uh, we've we've had it for years. We just didn't know how to how to properly integrate it into like a make a bar out of it. Uh, it's a bit of a bit of a long process. We stone grind it for about three days. That's where you get that smooth kind of creaminess mm. from. Um, but we also incorporate cacao into that as well. So that's where it gets its kind of tanned kind of color from. Um, I see. 
And so, um, yeah, just looking around, it doesn't really exist anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of our kind of our identity is your chocolate punks. As chocolate, you said it. I didn't say <laughs> it. Uh, chocolate punks. We've so it's interesting because a lot of our customers too come from like the kind of the wine world or the fine cheese world, and so. The, the term that they used to describe us in the early days up till now was like kind of punk or garage east, mm-hmm. which we never knew about garage east because we make a lot of our equipment ourselves too. It's a lot of like ad hoc uh, components that go into yeah. how we built our business over the yeah. years, mostly You're, to save money. Right. You're the steampunk guys. <laughs> the, the chocolate punk yeah. guys. Yeah, yeah the yeah, steampunk guys. Absolutely, it. yeah. That's so, so cool. Well, it's it's great that you've garnered so much respect. I mean, you guys have won awards for your chocolate, which is what a what a feat, like internationally, no? Yeah, it was yeah. great. Like last year was a was a bumper crop year for us in terms of getting uh, recognition uh, from the industry. Uh, so there's we typically um, enter our, our bars into the International Chocolate Awards. There's three components. There's the Canadian uh, awards. There's the Americas and then the worlds. Uh, We usually just apply for the Americas. Mm. And uh, last year, between the worlds and the Americas, we got nine awards. Um, I don't. We we try to stay humble. Congratulations! Thank you very much. That's that's huge. We try to stay humble, but we saw who we were up against. Very well-funded companies, especially in the states, and Mm. to see our (laughs) name kind of mentioned in the same breath, and considering how we started and how small we are. Uh, it was a pretty good feeling. Yeah, everyone loves a an underdog story. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, you know what? I also I wanted to mention too because we didn't really cover it, but you mentioned that you went to school for communications and you thought that you would have a career in creative agencies. Yes. But you're able to apply some of that creativity to the packaging. Yes. So a little bit of background um, about myself and also the the other kind of founders. We all have different kind of career backgrounds and different skill sets that really is very uh, creates a lot of synergy and that within within Kazama Chocolate. And you mentioned I went, so I did go to SFU and I, I went to the School of Communication there. And my 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 ideal dream job would have been to work in a creative advertising agency. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, for Rethink in Vancouver mm-hmm. uh, at the time was probably. The, the one shop that I, would, I was really gunning for. Um, things obviously didn't turn out uh, for me in the, in the advertising world, uh, but a lot of the um, kind of the knowledge and the concepts that we learned in school. I also went to Langara for uh, art direction as well. And um, so I learned a little bit about the psychology of how to kind of create a um, kind of memorable ads Usually, uh, you know, it's the ethos, pathos, logos, and trying to play to people's emotions and being memorable. And I, I think my strong suit is trying to be a bit more witty or funny. <laughs> um, so a lot of that's applied uh, or integrated into how we kind of do our marketing, in-house marketing. Yeah. Um, I also did a bit of design and typography uh, at Langara, and Dom um, was a fine artist. He was an animator for My Little Pony. Uh, him so and his cool. friends actually did the original artwork that's still on some of the bars. No way. Um, Oliver has a bit more of a food science uh, background and a bit more like philosophy and poetry as well. But mm. he was actually supposed to be more in computer science. Yeah. So he does a lot of our like copywriting, uh, most of all of it. And then Stefan has a kind of a tech and project management background too. So in terms of like management and scalability, that's just kind yeah, of Yeah, and operations. Yeah. Yeah. So all these things, um, I like to always say that we start a business. There's we have full spectrum. We've got everyone from the dreamer, the uh, 
the optimist, the pragmatist, and the realist. Right. And uh, I think you have to have all those kind of hats uh, to see all the potential kind of risks and strengths. So Yeah, look at six years, six or seven years seven in. Seven years this fall. So. Yeah. And then also, too, new retail and facility on Granville yes. Island. Yeah. So we opened up on Granville Island. Um, so we just turned one uh, about a year, uh, one and a half. Sorry, one one year and one month. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that location. At this location. We were in a in a commissary kitchen in East Van for the previous five years. Um, so that was interesting. We opened during the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. Didn't really know what to expect. We were kind of scared. Um, but we were able to kind of, you know, uh, just make it through that kind of tough stretch. And yeah, here we are online today. business is, was really helpful, right? Very, like very piv- helpful. Pivoting. Pivoting. Into that. Yeah. That's so exciting. Congratulations. Thank and you. I can't wait to see the space tomorrow, actually. Tomorrow, yeah. Yeah, I'm coming out there. I'm curious to know, now that you've been in the in this business for six years, has your ability to understand flavors and notes and how they work together, has that grown over the last couple of years? Or is it something that was always natural to you? I think it's more of a group dynamic. Um, all of us kind of have our own experiences with food. I think the main thing to know, too, is that when you're eating chocolate or wine or whiskey, I think a lot of your experience will be based on past, uh, how your palate has developed over the years. It's funny because I would, you know, give my chocolate to, um, you know, to friends and family or my girlfriend uh, who are in the Philippines, and they tell me they taste completely different things, mm. uh, which is really interesting, too, uh, from a marketing perspective. Yeah. Uh, so if somebody's never had rambutan before, uh, that might taste a bit more like lychee to somebody else. Um but I'd say that uh, I think there's always this thirst for finding new things and novelty, especially in, in North America. People like to try new things or like to see how things are kind of get flipped on its head and experience a very different way. Mm-hmm. And so we, we have a good balance, I think, especially doing things like a durian bar or trying um, even this muscovado bar. It's like these, it's got like peanut butter flavors in it. Uh, but somebody who's never had peanut butter before might not know what that's like and they might taste like tamarind instead. Mm. Um, so and I think I, I guess the biochemistry of your body too like how you're you're made up really affects sure. your, your tongue and your taste palate and apparently the best time to eat chocolates in the morning when your palate's uh, cleanest so. oh well that makes perfect sense yeah, yeah. okay good to know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> morning chocolate breakfast chocolate breakfast chocolate <laughs> yeah yeah that's so cool do you have a favorite uh, do you have a favorite flavor that you guys have made that you're like oh that's my my go-to or do you have like an equal love for all the ones that you've made it really depends on the mood Mm. i think we noticed too that like during uh you know vancouver it gets pretty cold and dark uh, in the fall and dark chocolate and dark times kind of go well well together yeah and then in the springtime i think we also noticed too a lot of people tend to gravitate towards our our uh, like our berry like our vegan fruit bars it's a bit more kind of like refreshing right strawberry bar or raspberry bar and then the, the stuff like the durian and the the muscovado, I think that's, it's just I think it's the novelty that people really are attracted to for that. Mm. But I feel that for me personally, um, it really depends on the season. I'll eat a lot of dark chocolate during the during the fall time. Well, I, I mean, it's I'm I'm now dry. I don't drink anymore. But it does remind me of wine. You know, like people mm-hmm. in the winter love these reds and these full bodied like oaky type yeah. of wines. And then in the summer, it's like. All the whites, yep. <laughs> all the rosés. So rose it, it, it makes sense that it's it's also seasonal with, yeah. with chocolate, especially if it's it's craft chocolate. For sure. Um, I'm curious about, 
emerging trends in chocolate. Are, are there ever is are there trends in chocolate from year to year? There is, especially when it comes to origins. Mm. Uh, right now, like Colombia, there seems to be a lot of makers using Colombian cacao beans. Uh, I think that's the nice thing too about uh, working with chocolate is each year there's always like a new origin, um, or even a new harvest. Uh, so that, like you'll see vin- like vintage bars, like 2015 vintage, for certain origins that um, a lot of people are kind of really high on. Um, but for trends right now, I'd say, well, a craft chocolate is starting to become trendy. Like we're noticing a lot more makers are popping up mm-hmm. uh, in Vancouver too, which is great to see for the industry. So similar to like craft beer. Yeah. When there's only like two or three makers, people are just kind of, mm, you know, like, what is this? It's overpriced. But when you start seeing like, oh, there's 12 to like yeah, 20 on the shelf, you now have a bit more of that market penetration and people start to realize that there is this kind of new emerging kind of craft food. Mm. Um, so I think as more people kind of are exposed to craft chocolate, um, especially now that hopefully they'll be able to do those festivals again. Yes. Um, you'll start seeing like that becoming more trendy and with that a lot more new trends uh, for years to come. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I even notice in major retailers, I'm starting to see more craft chocolate, mm-hmm. like in Whole Foods. Yep. Like they've got the, there's a Seattle brand that they've got almost all the bars there. Theo maybe. Maybe, maybe Theo. Uh, no, actually, this this brand is not Theo. It's the one that has all the, the beautiful packaging. It's like illustrated. Oh. It's called Seattle something or other. I, and I'm not sure. Maybe I'm thinking it's craft chocolate. Maybe yeah. it's not, but I think it is. Okay. I but, think there's um, a movement to, I know that the Canadian like food sh- show, I think mm. that they have down at the uh, convention center every year. I think last year there was a bit of a movement to kind of create a craft chocolate uh, section. Mm, I um, see. So that would be pretty interesting if that happens. Yeah, that's really cool. Do you have plans to go back to the Philippines soon? I do. Uh, I'm hoping to go back uh, at the end of um, either the end of this month or mm-hmm. probably the first week of April. Yeah. Um, we on my last trip there just this past uh, past July. Uh, we had made it some interesting like connections down there, mm-hmm. and I think that uh, we'd like to kind of pursue those more and kind of see where that goes. And see where it leads. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your time. I just have a couple more questions for you. Sure. Uh, the first one being, you know, you were talking a lot about when you were younger and, you know, not 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 fitting in or being able to sort of like find your way during that time, what would you like to say to yourself then as this person that felt like, oh, I don't know where I fit? Listen to more techno. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, seriously, though, uh, that's a great question. Uh, If I was to go back in time and I would honestly say to just keep, just do what you're doing. Um, Again, like the fact that I didn't feel pressure to really fit in anywhere was probably one of the best things. Had I had to choose one, then I don't know what I'd be like today. feel that just like, being a well-rounded individual, I think at least, mm-hmm. comes from like having lots of different experiences. Um, so I feel that uh, maybe I would have gone to the Philippines sooner and maybe gone to my dad's area just to kind of see. I think when you're, you're young, you just want to go see these big malls and go to the beach. But I feel like being in a, it's kind of like the Fraser Valley, but in, in, a, in a third world mm-hmm. or like developing country. So um, I think there's just this concept of what time is and what life is all about. Yeah. And then I also feel, too, that, like, uh, there's this kind of weird mirror reflection part, too. If my parents never came here, what would life be like had it stayed there? Right. So, mm. um, but, yeah, I, I definitely think that I would tell them, 
my, my younger version of myself to keep doing it. Two, version mm-hmm. 2.0. Mm. Keep going. Keep going. Mm. And if you were going to tell Dom, Stefan, and Oliver each individually what you appreciate most of them as a friend, not a business partner, what would you say? Uh, well, being the dreamer in the group, I would uh, tell individually. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would tell Stefan, uh, so he's probably the pragmatic one. I'd say thanks for being so kind of level-headed throughout the years um, as a friend. Um, I think we all have like really interesting ideas. And again, a very eclectic kind of musical taste, I think has some, I don't know why music has such an impact on people, but I feel that um, that's how we bonded too, is through Wolf, a Wolf Braid concert. No uh, way. Random Wolf Braid po- concert. Uh, no one wanted to go, and he was. Off, I just put up on Facebook. Anyone want to go to Wolf Parade? And he said yes. So uh, I thank him for like going to concerts. And we should keep going to concerts when mm-hmm. we have time. He's he's got a he's got a daughter now. So, mm. um, and for Oliver, uh, I'd say uh, yeah. Thanks for he's he's a great listener, and that's why he's like a good wordsmith and a good kind of with the poetry. He absorbs more than he puts out, and when he puts it out, he puts it on on a through pen on paper um so i really appreciate uh his like listening abilities as a friend over the year and um for dom as well so like we're kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of the realist and the and the dreamer uh just f- for his patience uh and um i think he uh, just think too like he's a lot more black and white too um which is really good to have a friend who can really you know say things uh, straight so I appreciate like you know the honesty and all that stuff over the years as a friend. Mm. It's amazing what you can learn from your friends, right? Yes. In your differences. Yeah. Yeah. My final question, the question that I ask everybody, with what you do, what is it that you want to leave behind in the world? Oh. I would just like to leave well we've made a lot of friends through this. I've made a lot of friends. Um and I think that the impression that I leave on them is like this the idea that most things are are possible if you are at the right place at the right time and you have the right kind of people around you to help kind of foster your self or your ideas so i feel that the what i would like to leave back is just that it sounds really corny but like that inspiration to be like oh this this guy like helped made, made something out of nothing with his friends um again like no previous experience with business or chocolate because um, I know a lot of people out there, uh, especially these days, uh, have a lot of, you know, foster their inner dreamers, you know. Basically, that's what I'd want to do, mm. get people to dream more. Right. Yeah. Live in the possibility of things. Exactly. Mm. Well, I think that is a great way to live. And I'm really thankful that I met you and that we forged this this new friendship. And, uh, yeah, I cannot wait to see your facility tomorrow and have more great conversations in the future. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much. My pleasure. If you enjoyed that last conversation, be sure to check out more episodes with Craft on Spotify and guest photo galleries on the website at wearethecraft.com. Thanks again for listening.